We are really excited to be joined by Mitch Chase to talk about the resurrection of Christ. Hello, Mitch, and thank you for joining us. Hi, David. It's a great time to be with you this morning here in the States. I know it's afternoon where you are, but I love to talk about the resurrection any time of the day. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, me, me too. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and my wife, Stacy and I uh, have been married 17 years. We have four boys. Uh, they're 13, 11, 9, and 5. And uh, so our life is uh, very energetic um, and not, <laughs> not a very quiet house. Uh, we've got uh, a fun stage in life, though, with these boys. And uh, I'm a local church pastor here in the city. And I'm an uh, associate professor of biblical studies at Southern Seminary in Louisville as well. And uh, so my time is divided um, doing uh, ministry things and uh, academic things with students it's a, it's a great joy to be in these realms, uh, seeking to serve the church and uh, trying to be faithful and uh, loving my family. I'm, I'm very blessed. That's brilliant. So I'm not quite sure where you found the time to write a new book then, Mitch, right? Because you've just got a new book that's just been published. <laughs> this is true. Life, uh, you know, it does have its margins that arise usually between semesters. And I will try to, to crank out some writing uh, on some kind of project. And um, it was in one of the, the winters in the last couple of years where I was working on Resurrection Hope and the Death of Death, uh, needing to meet a deadline and uh, needing to get out something that was stirring within me. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to speaking to you about that topic today. So let's start off from the beginning. Why is the resurrection crucial to the gospel message? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we should uh, just take Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15. If resurrection of Christ is uh, the hope we have, then a number of things follow, like forgiveness of sins, hope for those that have died in Christ. But for Paul, resurrection is so crucial that if it's not true, we are a people whose hope is in vain. Uh, the resurrection of Christ is the core of uh, or, or a part of the core and foundation for the Christian faith. For Paul, the uh, the notion that we would have a, a savior defeated by death who remained dead, the notion that we would have a gospel about a dead Messiah would not be a gospel worth proclaiming, not a gospel worth believing. Uh, the resurrection of Christ has a kind of vindicating power and establishing power to Paul's own gospel message. He believed he was the ambassador of the risen Christ. And uh, so, so much is connected to that, but that's, that's the gist of it, I think. Paul's own words highlight its centrality. Yeah. Yeah. When someone mentions the resurrection, most people would tend to think of the New Testament Gospels. But you've spent a lot of time tracking the resurrection hope through the Old Testament. What did you find, Mitch? Well, I've I've tried to I've tried to emphasize how resurrection in the New Testament doesn't just appear in a vacuum. It doesn't appear spontaneously as a hope. The uh, not only do we see the resurrection of Christ in the Gospels, the apostles continue to confirm a resurrection hope for the righteous and the unrighteous that will happen at the end of history. I wanted my book to explore where that's rooted, uh, where those hopes um, develop from. And uh, the Old Testament is the, uh, the foundation. We keep using this word, but it is so crucial. The foundation for resurrection hope, and it goes back really early, David. I think you can trace resurrection themes into the Torah itself. Um, there's something fitting about this because... The uh, seedbed of various hopes and, uh, and themes biblically arise out of the soil of the Torah. And one way I've tried to put it to, to different groups is that uh, resurrection hope grows out of covenant soil. And where is the covenant soil found? What's well, an Old Testament concept? The idea of God relating to his people in covenant and that his promises will be fulfilled, not even defeated by death but triumphing over death. Uh, the early books of the Old Testament are laying the groundwork for this. So I love talking about, you know, the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels. But Paul says Jesus was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. So there's something about the Old Testament that's preparing the way for God bringing victory over death. And uh, that's really good news. Yeah, for sure. So what does the Bible tell us about who resurrected Jesus, Mitch? The answer to that question, um, you you think of the triune nature of our God 
And we might be surprised that Jesus himself speaks in John 10 about uh, laying down his life only to take it up again. And you, uh, you get the notion that, okay, the son dies and rises from the dead. But um, you also have this reference to the Holy Spirit and involved in Jesus's resurrection. Romans 8 tells us that the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies also. If you go to the book of Galatians, the opening verses of Galatians 1, Paul says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. So it's an interesting question um, because who raises Jesus from the dead? Is it the Father? Is it the Son? Is it the Holy Spirit? I, th I think the right answer is, well, yes, <laughs> it's it's all of them. It's uh, the answer is D, all of the above. And um, <laughs> and, and I think I think the Bible is giving us a way of looking at Jesus's resurrection as the work of the triune God. That, that's the way to, to think about it. We could rightly say the father raises his son or that Christ himself rises from the dead. Uh, he has laid it down his life. That is only to take it up again. And then we could say the spirit raises Jesus from the dead. Um, it may just depend on the context of the New Testament we're in, in, uh, in how we answer that question. But it's, uh, it's good and well to recognize none of these verses are um, to be pitted against each other. These are not contradictory. Uh, the work of the triune God is what we see in the victory of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Can the various resurrection accounts from the four Gospels be harmonized, Mitch? Oh, I, I certainly think so. My operating assumption in approaching the scriptures is that this is the work of a divine author through his inspired human authors. And that means uh, we're not looking to find contradictions. We would assume that these eyewitnesses are writing in ways that would not be uh, inspired by the one God to contradict other accounts. This means um, that when God preserves and inspires his writings, they will complement and supplement one another in the teachings that they give. And, um, then, you know, some of them are longer and sh versus uh, shorter accounts of the resurrection. Mark 16 is, uh, is quite abrupt, maybe, with the way it ends in Mark 16, 8. And then you have uh, much longer accounts, such as uh, in John's gospel, where post-resurrection activity is happening with teachings and travels and even a breakfast scene in John chapter 21. Um, I, I think all of this is meant to tell us these eyewitnesses, and then with Mark and Luke, those who knew the eyewitnesses, um, we are reading supplementary and complementary accounts to give a holistic view of what God wants us to know. And, um, and therefore, approaching it that way, I think, honors the nature of the text, that this is an inspired document, and that we should read charitably as readers, looking to see what is it that Matthew wants to emphasize. And uh, when we look at Luke's gospel, what is it that Luke wants to emphasize? And being able to read all of them harmoniously, I think that uh, that helps us read Christianly because it's one divine author preserving his story of Jesus. Yeah. What was the significance of Jesus being dead for three days? The significance of Jesus being dead for three days comes, what comes to mind is 1 Corinthians 15 again, when Paul says Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. So you do have this emphasis on a period of time in which he was dead and buried and then raised. And this three or third is there. Um, one way to read this as an interpreter is to see Paul's words really emphasizing the resurrection according to the scriptures, and not necessarily a third day detail. But um, if, you're, if you're like some scholars, such as Stephen Dempster uh, and others, who have really wanted to include that detail, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, then we have this, we have this uh, I think, an invitation from the biblical author to ask, okay, in the Old Testament, why would a third day deliverance be significant? Is there a prophecy about a third day uh, deliverance? Um, and what we'll find, David, is from Genesis forward, this peculiar pattern begins to emerge of third day encounters or third day deliverances or something in three days happening of great significance. Um, and, and to show you what I mean, it tells us in Genesis 22 that Abraham and Isaac are going to a mountain. And on the third day, they arrive at the mountain where Isaac is then delivered from sacrifice when an angel intervenes. 
uh, you can notice different deliverances about the third day or in three days, some kind of encounter happening in uh, other parts of Genesis, like in the Joseph story or in Exodus at the arrival of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, or passages like Esther when she comes before the king in Esther, um, I believe it's in chapter uh, four or five. And then you have Jonah, you know, the Jonah story, he's delivered after three days and nights in the fish. Um, Hezekiah is delivered on the third day from being sick. I'm pointing out a few of these to say the third day emphasis begins to form a kind of expectation across the Old Testament that when a when a character has a major encounter of some sort or when an in, when a when a character is delivered from some kind of peril we are not surprised to find that the third day is mentioned in the context in some way in other words it's not as normal to find well, on the fifth day, somebody was delivered, or on the second day, this major encounter happened. You you have this um, expectation warming across the Old Testament of third day significance. So I think Dr. Dempster is right when he points out in an article he wrote for the Westminster Theological Journal uh, that um, the third day deliverance, according to the scriptures, which 1 Corinthians 15 mentions, It has in mind not one Old Testament text only, though I think you could point to some, but rather a cluster, a matrix of texts that have formed a solid hope across. So Paul's understanding a pattern of deliverance and third day coinciding. And then when Jesus is raised, well, then, of course, it wouldn't be on the fourth day or the fifth day. Of course, it would be the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the day that would make the most sense. Um, I, th- I think those are the the notions behind being dead for three days and being raised. That third day significance has a strong Old Testament background. That's really good. So where was Jesus uh, for these three days between his death and resurrection? Ah, So the language on the cross says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So he's praying to his father, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He's quoting a Davidic Psalm there. And so using the words of David, most fittingly now on the lips of Jesus, he's entrusting himself to the father. Um, We would want to say, I think his body has died physically and remained dead physically until the third day resurrection physically. But um, we are not just material beings. We, we have spirit and body. And if Jesus says into your hands, I commit my spirit, then I would say that when Jesus is disembodied at death, that the son, uh, the spirit of Christ is, uh, is, uh, with his father and the spirit and body of Christ are joined again with immortal physical life on the third day resurrection. Uh, that's not an easy thing to contemplate because I, I know, um, there's not a lot the text tells us we're doing some theological reasoning here. We're trying to imply that Christ being the righteous one is uh, is going to go where the righteous go at death uh, after his physical body dies. Um, uh, one way to, to try to confirm this with Luke's account, I think, is his words to the thief. So if Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, then, uh, then I think we have confidence that the abode of the righteous uh, will include not just the spirit of Christ, but the spirit of the righteous that would now even include the penitent thief on the cross. Um, The resurrection of Christ would mean spirit and body joined in everlasting bodily life. Uh, But that, that inner, that interim time, (laughs) that in between time, that's a perplexing period. You know, there's, there's not a ton, I think we can say, but a few glimpses of some information that we could uh, use some theological reasoning uh, to, to work out an answer. Brilliant. There, there yeah. are some people that teach that Jesus uh, descended to hell during those three days. Well, well, what do you think about that, Mitch? Yeah, so this this I find problematic personally and theologically. Um, there's something about this this notion of descent into hell that, that strikes me as unnecessary. When you look at the text of Jesus in John 20, he announces, or John 19, 30, he announces that it is finished on the cross. So you have this announcement of a victory. The temple veil is ripped. Um, You even have in Colossians 2, this reference to the the principalities and powers being triumphed over at the cross. The emphasis 
in the victorious work of Christ is at the cross place. And um, if we were to require that some descent to the abode of the unrighteous to achieve further victory or to somehow wrest sinners from the grip of the evil one, um, that I think is, is implying things in the text that are not necessary. Some of this goes back to a translation challenge in the Apostles' Creed, where um, we speak of he descended into Hades. And I think in this case, uh, this is a, a way of speaking about descending to the abode of the dead, but not necessarily meaning the fires of hell to fight against the devil. I would recommend my friend Matt Emerson's book, He Descended to the Dead, A Theology of Holy Saturday, uh, published by IVP. And, and I think that um, what Dr. Emerson is showing is that the, this line from the Apostles' Creed, as well as the biblical text in the Gospels, this does not require a descent of Jesus to Satan's realm, if you will. Um, we should see the victory of Christ completed on the cross, which we joyfully now and eagerly proclaim as, as the place of his triumph. Um, the resurrection of the dead confirms this in its bodily sense. But the cross was not the mostly victorious work of Jesus that he then finished elsewhere. It was finished on that cross. Brilliant. Something that disappears and seems to come back again every now and again of uh, people that believe in the, the swoon theory. What would mm. you say to any of those people that say that Jesus survived the crucifixion and that he didn't die to begin with? I, I think that notion of a swoon theory is problematic when it comes to how Roman crucifixions happened. They come uh, into their crucifying uh, uh, methods after Persians before them had, well, Greeks and Persians before them. This is an old um, practice. And the Romans knew how to crucify people. People were crucified with Jesus the day that he died on his right and in his left. Uh, people died on crosses before Jesus and after. This, this idea that Jesus would merely swoon on the cross, I don't think this takes seriously the gospel accounts as we have them. We also have uh, records outside the, the, the scriptures, extra biblical sources that speak of the man Jesus of Nazareth being killed by the Romans uh, under Pontius Pilate. It seems that extra biblical sources, as well as the gospel accounts, speak of this one named Jesus having died at the hands of the Romans. And um, if he merely swooned on the cross, uh, how, in the, how uh, would he be able to remove himself from uh, a tomb after coming, you know, I guess, back to full consciousness? Um, you have the problem of the Roman guard. You have the issue of how disciples would ever be convinced that he is a uh, victorious uh, death-defeating savior. I had back surgery back in 2015, small laparoscopic procedure, and I was unable to lift things uh, of a certain weight for a period of weeks. And here Jesus has been flogged. He has been crucified. And we would say, well, with the swoon theory, he didn't really die. He just swooned on the cross. Um, I would never have been able to convince someone of something of, of great uh, achievement physically after a small microscopic surgery done in a clean facility by trained surgeons. Um, right, yeah. the, the, the idea that a crucified Jesus has survived the cross not only stretches um, the the medical limits of what would be reasonable. Um, it, it calls into, um, a, a pro, it, it makes problematic multiple gospel uh, accounts of a victorious resurrection and encounter with his disciples. Um, they would not have been convinced that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead to triumph over death. Um, I, I, I think that that is a, that theory of a, the swoon theory is a desperate attempt that defies reason, just committed to not considering a resurrected body. Um, it is not a reasonable position to hold. Yeah, sure. Why didn't the disciples always recognize Jesus after his resurrection? You know, I've thought about this and I, I know people have uh, offered different explanations over the years that maybe the resurrection and glorification of Jesus's body uh, brings some kind of physical 
enhancement or alteration to his state, just as we might recognize how our future resurrected bodies uh, will be our bodies raised. But what exactly will we look like? How much will we resemble precisely ourselves in this present moment? Uh, So that maybe the resurrected body of Jesus uh, is definitely Jesus raised from the dead, but some sort of um, change physically. I mean, I think that's plausible. It's it's also plausible that uh, the disciples are deliberately inhibited from recognizing uh, Jesus initially, so that the Luke 24 account of uh, the disciples beside the 12, you think of Cleopas and the other person with them on the road who were walking with Jesus. And it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And that's an interesting divine passive there. Uh, Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That means that in some mysterious way and for some mysterious reason, God's plan was to reveal the identity of Christ to them at a later moment. And then we see them in the village Uh, In Emmaus, we see them um, at the table with Jesus, recognizing him when he breaks the bread. The disciples do encounter Jesus, and um, there is a growing uh, absorption and processing of what they're experiencing. We also we we could also put on the table here the option of uh, the bewildering experience to see someone they knew had been crucified. That if this if this had been true for our experience that a person we knew had died and they are back from the dead physically. That's what the announcement is. That's what the encounter seemed to indicate. We might just sort of stare at them thinking, is this really them? Is this really, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Um, it, it can speak of the incredulity of, of seeing someone raised from the dead. We would understand from a human um, vantage point why that seems unbelievable because people don't come back from the dead which is why it's so incredible when Jesus did <laughs> and so when he comes back from the dead they are their whole world is processing new creation information physical embodied life that uh, has now occurred in the middle of human history with them um, that's a lot to take in and um, Christ is very gracious with them. He welcomes them to behold his scars and hands. He welcomes Thomas to touch his wounds. Um, it is indeed the risen Christ who had been crucified. And uh, they they are processing this grand reality and then orienting their lives to proclaim it. Yeah, yeah, so good. What does scripture tell us about the glorified bodies that we're going to receive, Mitch? When I look at Philippians 3, it tells me that We await from heaven our Savior, who will transform our lowly bodies to become like his glorious body. That the the cue that I get from that, David, is that the 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 risen life of Christ forms a kind of pattern or mold which I'm to expect our own resurrected bodies to imitate. Uh, Now that doesn't mean um, the 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 gender part with Christ, because I think those who die, uh, women will be raised in uh, uh, everlasting bodily life as women, and the same thing for for men who die. Um, I I do think, though, that the risen body of Christ um, exhibits a defeat of death to never die again, so that you have an immortal aspect to this body. He had been born in a perishable body, a body that could grow and suffer and experience pain and die. But the imperishability of his risen body is what our bodies will be like. And at the same time, Jesus did not have one body remain in the in the tomb and then his spirit be joined to some new body outside the tomb that was created especially for him. We could also conclude then from his risen state that our glorified bodies will be our bodies raised from the dead to a state that is transposed and glorified that we could say is immortal. There is an immortality and embodied glory that will characterize ours. Um, The hope for this, as Paul teaches in Romans 6 and Romans 8, is that our connection and union with Christ is what guarantees this for us. We would have a reasonable hope uh, for our bodies to be raised because of what the Old Testament already teaches. But we are united by faith to the risen Son of God. Already we have been raised to new life spiritually. And our bodies will be redeemed as well from the dust. Uh, uh, when I uh, when I uh, try to think about that 
division that exists right now, spiritual resurrection, but physical decay. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, uh, outwardly, we are wasting away. And inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. There is already um, a, a life, a quality of life and, and power at work within us because of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ will ensure that we will be raised from the dead like him as well. So the work God has begun, he will bring to completion. And uh, that includes glorification. That's such a tremendous Christian hope. We would be, we would be uh, uh, well encouraged to think more about it. Brilliant. I think it's come from um, Greek mythology that some people think that uh, eternal life is going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp all day. What will our resurrected bodies actually be doing? Will we still be eating? Will we still be married for those that are married on earth now? What, what does eternity look like, Mitch? Well, I think there's discontinuity because uh, Jesus is confronted by some Sadducees in Luke 20 who do ask him about resurrection. Um, they don't believe in it themselves, but the Sadducees want to make the doctrine seem ridiculous. And they give him this hypothetical story about a woman who marries all these brothers. And what he tries to help them see is that uh, in his answer, the age that we live in now is not exactly going to be mirrored in the age to come. There is some discontinuity. Marriage, he teaches, is for this life only. And, um, and yet, we do know that being raised from the dead and having eternal life with Christ on a new creation will bring up questions on, well, what will our life look like? And I think this is where the scriptures don't speak a ton into this at all. We, we can imagine um, uh, being faithful image bearers in the new creation and having the joy of work without the toilsome nature of it that Genesis 3 describes. Um, we can imagine the everlasting pleasures at God's right hand that, set, that Psalm 1611 talks about that will be ours. Um, I, I think that there's much that we're then just going to have to trust the Lord with that being raised from the dead will mean a life that surpasses anything I can imagine uh, in this life as good uh, or that I would want to last or get a grip on to hold on to. None of those fleeting pleasures uh, come close to the surpassing glory that awaits us. Um, I, I think we could also affirm that the reason we are bored um, in, uh, in this life in many ways is because of what can feel mundane in this life, routines and habits, what can feel distracting, what we can't find the strength or focus to enjoy, many things in this life that uh, are associated maybe with mundaneness or boredom. But our affections and our minds and hearts will be so transformed Boredom will be impossible in the age to come. If we were to fear that, um, and, and the reason I'm mentioning this to interrupt myself for a moment is that um, I think growing up, there are, there, it is a normal feeling for disciples to wonder, what will eternity with God be like? Won't I be bored? Am I just going to be floating around? What is it going to look like? Is it even that desirable? I think that shows our lack of imagination at the glories and wonders of what is to come, as if being in the unmediated presence of God could ever be something dull or something that we would grow callous to. Um, so back to my answer after I interrupted myself is, um, you know, Jonathan Edwards argues that our delight in God will escalate. And because God is eternal and we could never come to the end of knowing him, that there will always be more to know, praise, exalt and enjoy that we have ahead of us unending joys and pleasures and glories uh, in the life to come. We just can't imagine what that's like because we don't know things in this life that don't at some point come to an end relationships and food experiences and parties and holidays, good movies and good books. We, we know things that we enjoy coming to an end. That, that's the, the sad nature of a Genesis 3 world. We can't hold on to joy. Uh, we want more of it. And I, and I think that desire arises from the fact that we were made for unending and ever-increasing delight in God. That will be our portion in the age forevermore. That is our future. We're going to have to take that by faith because the scripture reveals God's graciousness and joy and promises in the age to come for us. 
but um, but we can at least affirm our hope is a grand one. This is not some small or peripheral idea that, man, when we experience it, what a letdown that's going to be. It will be far greater than we can possibly imagine it to be. And uh, if we if we allow our our hearts to ponder those things like that, hopefully that would stir up our longings for the age to come. And we would say like the end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come soon, uh, because we know what our life with him uh, would no doubt consist of. Bearing in mind how you've just answered that question and the delight in God that we're going to that we can look forward to. But the next question is, will we be able to recognize one another in heaven? But how, how you've just set the scene for us, Mitch, I'm not sure that's even important anymore, is it? <laughs> <laughs> What, 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 in terms of our glorified bodies, I mean, that, that is a question that obviously a lot of people ask, isn't it? Will we be able to see family members and recognize loved ones? What, what does scripture tell us about that? I, I think because the disciples had some recognition of Jesus, that if we could take those experiences and project them forward, which seems reasonable to me theologically, that because they would recognize Christ, we would be able to be raised in our bodies in the new creation and have a recognition and fellowship with one another Um, because our affections and senses will be heightened in a glorified body. We might even say that our recognition and familiarity with uh, other image bearers would be increased and not diminished and that our fellowship would be heightened and not lessened. Um, I would, I would reason that way theologically. And so I expect that that would be the case. Yeah, sure. Sure. Many people watching uh, may be hazy about the timeline of events from death to judgment. Walk us through that timeline in terms of what happens when we die, where do we go? And then what happens next? Yeah. So if I, if I think of the thief who goes to be with Christ in paradise, I would look at this to say, when the believer dies, the believer is disembodied and is at heaven with the Lord. Um, I also think of Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians five teaches that when we are absent from our body, uh, we are present with the Lord Himself, and we await the eternal dwelling, our bodies, having set aside the earthly dwelling, our tent. At death, we will be raised immortal. Now, um, I'm combining several texts there in order to say believers are on good biblical grounds to believe that when we die, we go to heaven to be with the Lord. Now, the same would imply for uh, the unrighteous in the opposite sense, where um, they would die and they would be in the presence of the Lord's judgment or um, displeasure. They would not know his peace, his life, his blessing. Um, Instead, they're like the rich man in Luke 16, uh, who is um, in a place of uh, agony and dishonor and um and 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 judgment now i'm using that word judgment not to imply the final judgment what what i think death brings is a disembodiment for the righteous and the unrighteous but what your question requires us to think through is but what about the return of christ what will that mean for the righteous and the unrighteous well it will mean resurrection and daniel 12 verse 2 teaches us that people will be raised from the dust, some to right, uh, to life and others to everlasting contempt. I, I think John 5, 28 and 29 are the words of Jesus picking up on Daniel 12, verse 2. And he says that the righteous will be raised for life and the wicked will be raised for judgment. This means that in the timeline of our future, though we will all be disembodied at death, we will all be raised and gathered Um, at the return of Christ for everlasting states to be established in a physical sense. Um, Now, I know that some eschatological views will bring some tweaking on the timeline here because the the end times, the subject and the timing of Christ's return and resurrection, these are a matter of, uh, of great interest and certainly widespread dispute. But the creeds, and I think of the Nicene Creed in particular, this teaches us that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. We are awaiting his um, His uh, His coming. His kingdom will never end, and we will have eternal bodily life with him. The wicked will reap what they have sown. They have rejected the Lord. They have loved the darkness, and so they will reap everlasting embodied 
uh, dishonor. That is their future. And um, the Lord will, in, in my understanding of the timeline, the Lord will um, bring these states to an eternal sta- uh, status at the return of his son. And uh, we don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return. Uh, so there's probably a lot connected to those uh, timeline eschatology discussions, but that's at least a, a way that I see it at this point. Yeah, sure. A, a question I'm sure you've been asked um, before, Mitch, is will our pets be resurrected? Oh, you know, I um, I don't know. I feel like this is one of those questions that I, I want to say yes to because I know that the things of uh, of this earth will um, that we have enjoyed and that we have uh, found meaningful will um, will be experiences that I think foreshadow the glories and joys of the new creation. I would not be surprised at all if the creatures made in this world that have brought life and joy, vitality and and happiness to people are in some sense part of the new creation. I would expect that in the goodness of God and in the wisdom of God and in the sheer joy of God, that um, we will not just have human image bearers in the age to come. Now, um, if, if, if somebody were to say, you know, if my pet dies, will my pet be raised from the dead in a, in a, you know, a glorified body? I don't see the New Testament addressing those issues clearly at all. I would want to tell that person that the Lord understands the sorrow and pain that someone feels when something beloved like a dear animal dies. And yet we can trust the Lord. We can really trust the Lord that the joys and the uh, sorrows and griefs of this life will not have the last word. And that in the age to come, we will experience a joy and a happiness and a vitality that's in keeping with the goodness and wisdom of God. And I think that will involve um, even experiences and joys from this life, like uh, animals and care and stewardship over them. Um, And I know that might not answer all the questions that uh, a child and an adult can bring um, to the Bible about this question. But the Bible, uh, we have to recognize, won't always answer all of our questions directly. So we use a little theological reasoning to try to give both some comfort and encouragement to uh, point people to the goodness of the Lord. And hopefully that would give them some hope, as well as um, give them uh, a sense of how good God is to give us gifts to enjoy and relationships that are meaningful in this life, even if we don't think that they last as long as we wish they would. Yeah, yeah. Where did this idea come from that some people have that uh, when they die that they grow a pair of wings and turn into angels? <laughs> this is an older idea, isn't it? You you see this in um in uh things throughout history where you're depicting life in the age to come as uh as something that looks almost angelic, you know? Um my my understanding about this in any research I've done on this topic is that um, Jesus's words in Passion Week can be e- easily misunderstood. In Passion Week, on Tuesday of that week, he's talked to by some Sadducees. And I mentioned this story earlier because they try to embarrass him about his conviction of resurrection hope. Uh, part of Jesus's answer is that we will not marry nor be given in marriage in the age to come, but we will be like the angels in heaven. And that can be the kind of statement, be like the angels in heaven, hmm, okay, and that people can just take and say, all right, well, what do I picture angels like? Well, according to Isaiah chapter 6, you have one example of angels, the seraphim, that are described as winged creatures. And um, all of a sudden, you can realize how multiple texts can be pulled together to say, hey, we will have our wings in heaven. We will be angels in heaven. So uh, if you hear someone maybe at a, at a funeral service, they say, well, this loved one who has died, you know, he's now ha- he now has his wings or, uh, or she now has her or she's joined the angels. And um, I think what they mean by that is that they've entered this loved one, they're convinced that this loved one has entered into a kind of state of of bliss and joy that's depicted with an angel in his wings as something desirable. Jesus's words don't mean that that's our future. 
It's an analogy. It's a simile. Jesus uses the word like to not say we are we will be equivalent to angels, but we will be like them in the sense that they are not married, nor are they being given in marriage in the age to come. That means our status with regard to marriage will be like the angels. That will not be a state uh, marriage that we will pursue, be given to, or have in the age to come. The simile, like the angels in heaven, I think it simply means that. And that if people make it mean more than that, and they speak of loved ones and winged uh, future for their loved one and becoming an angel in the clouds, that's a a kind of distorting of Jesus's words and an adding to Jesus's words that's unwarranted. So I would answer it in that way. Yeah, brilliant. Why is it important that we understand that Jesus was ascended bodily and that he reigns today bodily and that he will return bodily? I think this is a really important question because it helps us see the trajectory of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 forward, God creates a world that's not just of invisible realities, but visible material creation he pronounces as good. And the corruption of sin and death will not triumph over God's creation. He will not redeem most of the world he has made. And, you know, in in the end, we will dwell spiritually and then yet not physically. Death will have the last word with regard to physical creation, you know, something like that. Instead, we see that God's commitment to his creation, his pronouncement of the goodness of creation will be confirmed, eternally established and vindicated by new creation by his hand when the return of Christ takes place. This means that um, our bodies are not irrelevant in this life. And our bodies are not some small uh, part of our hope in the age to come. We will be raised from the dead because we are created as embodied creatures in Genesis 1 and 2. And the goodness of creation, the wisdom of God, and the glory of God have been wrapped into a physical creation. The... um, the Christmas song, Joy to the World, and I say Christmas song, it, it, it even speaks of the return of Christ, if you think about it in, in one sense, but it's often played at Christmas time. And I'm already listening to Christmas music, David. And so I've, you know, Joy to the World says uh, that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And part of the manifestation of the curse and corruption of sin is in the death of our physical bodies. This means that when the blessing of God in his redeeming power works to save and renew, it will not stop short of death. It will conquer death. Death will die. Uh, My book is entitled Resurrection, Hope, and the Death of Death. And we long for the death of death. We long for the day when our bodies will not be kept in the cords of of corruption, uh, disease and decay, corruption and death itself will be no more. Uh, the goodness of creation will be seen in its most pristine and escalated way on that day. Uh, so I think it's really important to our Christian hope and the biblical storyline that the goodness of God's physical world be affirmed. And that implies, too, that in this life, we are practicing resurrection by caring for our bodies in a ways that honor, honor the Lord. We want to practice uh, the fruit of the spirit. We want to live with self-control in ways within our bodies to show that we are united to Christ And we really believe bodily life matters. We don't want to be Gnostics to emphasize the spirit and ignore the physical. We want to say God has created bodies to be good and to be used for his glory. And uh, Paul teaches this at the end of Romans 6, not to give our bodies over to be instruments of, of wickedness and sin, but instead to honor God with our bodies, for we are connected by the Holy Spirit to the risen Christ himself our bodies will be raised. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think all of these, no- these notions here speak into the value of the body, the goodness of creation, and it helps us get at the question you've asked by thinking about it with the whole counsel of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Thank you. Given the limitations of a body, how will the whole earth know when Jesus returns? Yeah, I, I think this question um, is one that is mysterious. We, we, um, in terms of its answer, we we know that the return of Christ is prophesied bodily because of Acts one, not just Acts one, but that's one spot to go to where he says, or the the uh, angelic figures tell the disciples that just as you've seen him go, you will see him return. 
uh, we are expecting then a bodily return of Christ. It matters that he has uh, ascended and been raised. In fact, this was part of your earlier question. I realized I didn't touch on the, the very ascended incarnate Christ who reigns at the right hand of God and will return bodily further demonstrates not only his own victory on the cross because he's been raised from the dead now, but he ensures the goodness of human bodies by remaining eternally embodied himself, the eternal son of God. Now, um, our limits in our physical selves mean that I can't see what's happening on other parts of the world. I need, uh, you know, technology and I need other things that would inform me, get my mind aware, or even help my eyes to see the return of Christ that the earth longs for, the, the earth groans for, according to Romans chapter eight, um, I am not sure how our experience of that will be when it takes place. It does tell us that we will be transformed in first Corinthians 15, that in the twinkling of an eye, those who have uh, died will be raised and those that remain. And I take that to mean the, the undead at the return of Christ, the living, um, we will be transformed to be with Christ forever. But Apart from those specific details, I don't think the full experience of of uh, what we will see at the return of Christ is articulated for us. And uh, so we're in a wait and see mode there, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, let's yeah. let us find out together what all that will be like and what a glorious day yeah. that will be. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Can you be a born again Christian and deny the resurrection? I don't think so. This is... Um, this is an issue that for Paul is a non-negotiable gospel matter. The resurrection of Christ is part of what it would mean for people to want to hope in him. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then he is a disqualified Messiah by Paul's own teachings. And Paul's teachings is that we would be dead in our sin. If someone doesn't believe Christ has been raised, then why would they consider themselves a Christian? What would be worth following of Jesus if in the end he taught ethical teachings and yet remained a disqualified Messiah? It's very core to the gospel itself that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Um, I also think if Jesus wasn't raised physically, then Jesus himself is a false prophet because Jesus said that the son of man would suffer and be rejected and be killed and on the third day rise again. If what you have is a Jesus who stayed dead, then we shouldn't trust him. We certainly shouldn't follow him. We most certainly shouldn't give our lives for him. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, um, then we have all this hope and more that's been clear in Scripture. We have faith in Christ that is not in vain. We can labor and even lay down our lives knowing that we will be redeemed in our body and raised from the dead at his return. The resurrection of Christ is not something we would want to deny and then insist to be a Christian. What would be the point, I think, would be Paul's answer. And I, um, I, I think that somebody new to the Christian faith can be working through various doctrines. What is it that I need to believe? So if someone said, Okay, do I need to believe really, though, that Christ has been raised from the dead in order to follow him? I wouldn't immediately assume that person's not a Christian. I'd want to explain why they're believing in Christ. I'd want to explain why Jesus had to rise from the dead so that they can embrace all that the gospel's teaching. I think when the Lord is drawing people to be his disciples, there is a lot of learning that has to take place. What you would not want, David, is someone who refuses to believe what you clearly teach them from the scriptures as core gospel news. Um, you know, it's similar to questions that can be asked sometimes. What is my understanding of the Trinity that I need in order to be a Christian? Well, I don't think there's probably a lot of Trinitarian discussion in evangelism at a first conversation with someone anyway. We're trying to get them to see who Christ is and what he's done on the cross. We're not trying to explain inseparable operations and uh, the eternality of the Son in ways that will become clearer in discipleship. But if someone claims to be a Christian and the posture of their heart is to reject primary doctrinal issues, then what you have is a situation where they are demonstrating heresy. They are outside the bounds of orthodoxy and Christian instruction. And in that sense, they should not maintain a confession that they're Christians. They should remove that label because according to the very scripture itself, 
Christians are those who follow the risen Christ. Yeah. Mitch, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh, this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, closing thoughts. You know, David, my my book is trying to direct people in a, a academic sense in one way to uh, consider the scope of Scripture. Think about a lot of different texts from the law, prophets, writings, gospels, acts, letters, revelation. These seven chapters are trying to lay out a lot of biblical data to process. Uh, I try to comment on it. I try to uh, transition from these books and chapters into newer material and newer eras of the biblical story to trace resurrection hope. But um, but I think resurrection hope is never something that's just an academic doctrine for us. Doctrines give life. They are what thrills our soul. And to see the doctrine of resurrection hope from the Old and New Testaments, my, my aim is that readers would be tremendously encouraged because we have a hope unshakable because we have a Christ who is undefeatable. He has been raised victoriously and he reigns at the right hand of his father and he will come again with power and great glory. And um, I, David, I think this can help us persevere through a lot of dif difficulties. Life is hard. Our trials and hardships are not small. And Paul tells us though, that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. And he tells us this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. And the context for Paul's instruction there, for his hope, for the encouragement he gives about our great glory to come, it's in the light and in the context of a resurrection hope. We are going to be raised from the dead. And he fixes his eyes, and we should as well, on the unseen hope. And it, it helps us keep putting one foot in front of the other. This life is not all there is. And everything that seems to be pushed against us, God will work for our good, our everlasting risen good. And all that others mean to design against us for evil and for our demise, God will overcome by redeeming power in a way that the age to come will make clear with our vindication and our eternal bodily life. This is a hope that we need day to day. I, I hope that Resurrection, Hope, and the Death of Death, um, this Crossway book, will um, inform people biblically. But I also hope it will encourage them tremendously, that in their hearts, they will long and deepen in their hope for um, the life God has made them for. And he will keep his promises, and they will be raised. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Mitch. What is the best way for people to keep in touch with your work? I'm on Twitter. That's probably the best spot to find me at Mitchell Chase. And uh, I'd love to interact with folks there on social media. Um, Twitter is a place where uh, you can find both uh, a mixture of, of things discouraging and encouraging in uh, the social media world right now. But uh, I would hope that I and others are trying to encourage people in their walks with Christ and uh, point people to good news. Uh, we're ambassadors in that way. So if people want to interact with me on Twitter, I welcome that at Mitchell Chase. And uh, if they get a copy of the book, oh, I hope it'll bless them. Thank you, David. It's great to be with you. Brilliant. Thank you, Mitch. Well, we're going to put a link to your Twitter account and to your uh, listing on Amazon for the book as well in the description below. Mitch, thanks again for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, David. 